You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone from Room Now. This is Michelle Petrie with my fourth and final update from the ACR Convergence meeting. I hope you've had a chance to view the original three. Today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. You all know I'm a clinician and how important I think updating on clinical studies is to our practice. But today I want to get you excited about some basic science improvements. In particular, I want to review the urine proteome and what do these advances mean to us. So let's start with some context. You know, right now in lupus nephritis, we follow proteinuria. And our goal is a complete renal response, getting our patients to below 500 milligrams. But now I have to shake your faith in this clinical outcome because in fact, proteinuria doesn't always indicate renal activity. And it can go the other way. Resolution of proteinuria doesn't mean that the renal activity is necessarily gone. So in fact, when there's persistent histological activity, even if the proteinuria has reached the outcome, that patient's still very likely to have a flare. So I've never met a kidney biopsy I didn't like because they usually end up changing the treatment. But let's be honest, the patient doesn't like them and that's why we don't do them frequently. So this is where the Accelerated Medicines Partnership has taken such a leading role. And remember, this is all centered around doing the kidney biopsy and then doing single cell RNA transcriptomics. But the Hopkins group has led the urine proteomic arm. So this is how AMP was organized, the kidney biopsy, and then a urine specimen at week zero, 12, 24, and 52. These were then subjected to a urine proteome screen called Kiloplex that can actually quantitate 1,200 different urine proteins. So Andrea Fava from our group has presented three key findings at ACR Convergence. And the first is to bring forward urinary CD163 as a urine proteome marker of proliferative lupus nephritis. Now, as clinicians, we're going to have to get used to these plots. They're called volcano plots. It's how big data can be presented to us. And what you see circled in red is CD163, which comes from the M2 macrophage. That's considered a tissue healing macrophage. And you can see that the results from the first AMP cohort on the left were reproduced in the second cohort on the right. You see the big arrow pointing to CD163. But in addition, Brad Robin's group had already brought up the potential importance of CD163 as a urine proteome biomarker. You can see that in people who respond, CD-163 also goes down. But that's just the beginning of the story. So another marker in the urine proteome is interleukin-16. Now you're used to this. You know volcano plots. 
And you can see both in the original cohort and the validation cohort, interleukin-16 there at the top. And nobody knew about interleukin-16 and lupus nephritis until this urine proteome screen was done. Now, not only does interleukin-16 go down in the responders, but this one is independent of proteinuria. So it might be particularly useful in those patients in whom we find that the proteinuria is normalized. We still want to ask the question, is there still renal histologic activity? Turned out it was the most highly expressed cytokine. And how could we have missed it all these years? This is the excitement of basic science discovery. And what is it? It's a pro-inflammatory chemokine. It's the ligand of CD4. And so it's one of the reasons that all the other inflammatory cells are coming into the kidney. But now there's a third one, neutrophils. Now, back when I was in training, we were told lupus was a lymphocyte disease. Of course, everybody was wrong. It's also a neutrophil disease. And here you see circled all sorts of neutrophil markers in the urine. Incredible how many there are. And it turns out this neutrophil signature is associated with histologic activity. And here's the proof, it's all coming from the kidney. You can see all these neutrophils. So it means that we just can't have anti-lymphocyte drugs, right, or therapies. We're gonna to have to go after neutrophils too. So I hope that in this number four update, I've gotten you excited that basic science is going to catch up and help us in making treatment decisions in our patients. Thank you all from Room Now. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Aurélie from Glasgow reporting for Room Now. So I hope you uh, really enjoyed the past three days of conference. Today's the last day and I have found this very nice presentation that I wanted to share with you. So um, I think as far as I remember uh, attending rheumatology clinics, I've always heard patients telling me, oh, you know, doctor, the other day it was raining and my joints were so sore. I can definitely um, do, um, you know, weather forecast um, based on my joints. And, you know, it was always, I, I would never really answer that question. And it's always been a bit of a, you know, struggle. But today with abstract 1912, we actually have an answer. So this group from Vienna, what they basically did is that they looked into a cohort of about 400 patients for over a period of 12 years. And um, they looked into a wide range of, you know, um, health, um, weather related parameters like temperature, um, absolute and relative humidity, dew point, and um, the level of precipitation. And um, of course, uh, something you can think is because I'm from Glasgow, obviously it rains a lot. So we have a lot of that. But, um, but in general, uh, it was very interesting to see. Um, so what they did is they looked at whether these um, uh, weather parameters had different effects based on um, patients' disease activity. And actually the very interesting thing they saw is that patients with high or moderate disease activity um, of their rheumatoid arthritis 
was um, were experiencing less um, pain when the temperature was higher, but also a higher number of swollen joints and and and, and um, higher amount of pain when the humidity was increased. Now, these findings were not uh, the same for patients with low disease activity. These uh, patients had uh, high humidity uh, when they have a high humidity or dew point. Actually, the patient global was lower and there was no uh, relation with the other parameters uh, in patients with low disease activity. So, I mean, I think this is a very interesting work because we've heard that and it's a very old concept that, you know, whether can influence pain or, you know, patient global or disease activity. And we get an answer that shows, you know, that it's actually linked. Now, what we would really want to know is why. Um, so um, I hope we're going to have some answers to this question in the next years. Um, at least now I know how to tell what to tell my patients when they, they ask me. Um, and um, stay tuned with Ramnar for more of this great scientific content. And follow me on Twitter at Aurélie Raimo. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2021. And I'm here to talk to you today about abstract number 1920, which was an oral presentation uh, today on Tuesday. This was entitled Association of CRP and NSAIDs with Cardiovascular Events in Psoriatic Arthritis. It was presented by Ho Man Lam from Hong Kong. This was a retrospective cohort study. And the main outcome of this was the first cardiovascular event. And this is of interest because um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, there's been concerns about these and associations with increasing cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular events, strokes, heart attacks in the general population. And we use these drug drugs a lot in our diseases and particularly in psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. Um, we might like to use NSAIDs as a, a long-term everyday uh, treatment. And we've been a little bit uncomfortable doing that because of the potential um, associations um, with uh, these cardiovascular risks. So these authors um, used uh, Cox proportional hazards um, modeling with time varying CRP and drug um, effects. And they adjusted uh, for baseline Framingham risk score to take into account the, the underlying uh, general cardiovascular comorbidities. They had 200 patients with psoriatic arthritis and the median age was 47 years, 60% were males, so fairly typical psoriatic um, arthritis population. And what they found was that increased CRP was associated with an increase in cardiovascular events, but it has a ratio of 1.02, so quite a small effect. Um, but you are seeing that um, this inflammatory state appears to be associated um, with increased cardiovascular events. And then very interestingly, when they looked at non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, they found a decreased association with cardiovascular events with a hazard ratio of 0 0.30, which is really quite a, quite a big effect. And I think the biologic explanation here, or the one that makes the most sense, is that these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are decreasing uh, this inflammatory uh, effect that's seen. Um, so the effect of the inflammation and increase in cardiovascular risk. And actually in this population, it seems that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories 
may well be a, a positive in, in terms of uh, future cardiovascular events. Uh, so very reassuring, I think, for a lot of us in the way we practice at the moment and uh, use NSAIDs uh, quite a lot um, in the long term. Um, so uh, if you want more information from ACR Convergence, uh, please uh, log on to Room Now and uh, follow me at Richard P.A. Conway on Twitter. Hi, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern in Chicago, and I'm coming to you for Room Now from the last full day of ACR Convergence 2021. I've been looking at psoriatic arthritis abstracts all week, and today I wanted to highlight a really important pediatric psoriatic arthritis abstract that was presented at the plenary session yesterday. Uh, this is abstract uh, 1424. It's the Junipera study, secukinumab and enthesitis-related arthritis or juvenile uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, you know, the pediatricians have um, had challenges over the years as they don't have as many options for their kids uh, as we do for our adult patients. Um, and interestingly, actually, at this very same meeting, uh, there's a, a poster uh, 249 on the 10-year results of Etanercept in pediatric psoriatic arthritis. So they've had biologics, uh, but they haven't had anything other than TNF inhibitors. And it's really nice to see uh, good data with other mechanisms in the pediatric population. This particular study was run much like a lot of the other pediatric studies in which all the kids got uh, active drug uh, initially, and then those kids who responded uh, were randomized to stay on active drug or switch to placebo. Uh, they do this that way because that minimizes the amount of time that a kid may be on placebo and not be uh, actively treated. Uh, this study looked at 86 kids uh, with either enthesitis-related arthritis, which is essentially juvenile spondyl arthritis, or juvenile psoriatic arthritis, uh, and, and the highlights were that all of these kids either currently or previously had some enthesitis, which is a major feature of both of those diagnoses. And they were treated with open-label secukinumab uh, weekly for five weeks um, uh, with a dosing based on weight. And then they got another dose at the eight-week time point. And then at 12 weeks, those kids who were doing well, who had responded with a a JIA ACR30 response, which is a, a joint response, 87% um, of those kids were then randomized uh, to switch to placebo or stay on the secukinumab uh, in a blinded fashion. And the primary endpoint was time to flare after randomization. And there was a dramatic difference between the secukinumab group and the placebo group, with the placebo group having a medium time to flare uh, after randomization of just over a year, um, the secukinumab group didn't even hit a, hit a medium time because they kept responding. Uh, safety data was very uh, consistent with the safety of secukinumab in adults. Um, and so I, I think that the key point of the study, which was initially presented as a late breaker at ULAR last summer, uh, but this is the first time that many in the U.S. audience are seeing it, um, the key takeaway from the study is that it's really nice to see good data with another mechanism of action in these children with pediatric uh, psoriatic arthritis as well as the spinal arthritis. Um, this data will presumably uh, help them as it gets into the label getting approval for these drugs for kids. And hopefully this is just the first of additional data to come looking at other mechanisms so that they, they're not limited to one 
uh, target in these pediatric uh, uh, patients. Uh, that's it for me for ACR Convergence 2021, uh, but check out roomnow.com for lots more information about this meeting, uh, lots of interesting insights about the data presented. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting once again for Room Now from ACR 21, and very lucky to be joined by uh, Cassie Calabrese, friend of Room Now, but also one of the chairs of the IRAE study group this year at ACI 21. Cassie, welcome. Thank you for having me, David. It's always a pleasure to talk uh, about IRAEs, one of our shared interests. And um, there's been a, a lot going on at the meeting. You know that this hasn't been a flash in the pan type of problem. In fact, this has got more and more sophisticated over the course of time. That is absolutely true. It's definitely not a, a flash in the pan type of problem. I, I like that. Um, it was nice to see, first of all, it's always a pleasure to talk about IRAEs with you during this meeting, during this virtual meeting. Um, but it was nice to see that IRAEs were not uh, overshadowed by COVID this year. And we still had uh, so much, so much going on. And um, I... I guess for the third or fourth annual, I don't even know, um, study group, IRA study group was this morning, which is always exciting and just honored and humbled to, to co-host that with my friend and colleague, uh, Noha Abdel Wahab San from MD Anderson. And we hosted Pankti Reed from University of Chicago and really highlighted the concept of concurrent biologic therapy with immunotherapy, which is such a hot topic and rapidly growing field that we have, you know, a lot to, to learn about. And, and they both shared kind of ongoing and future plans for investigating the impact of, of biologic therapy on IRAEs and, and tumor outcomes, which is, is really exciting. Mm, so let's break that down. Um, so I guess, uh, especially for the uninitiated, there's a bit of a dilemma here that we know that patients develop um, immune-related adverse events from checkpoint inhibitors. It's well known now, but uh, and often they look like our type of problems. We want to give them the, the biologics um, that we are used to giving them and, and maybe even target them synthetics. Um, and then the question has always come about as to what that might do in terms of the tumor response. How much of the immune response are we winding back? Um, so I guess it, it's pretty clear. I mean, as you laid out this morning, there's... Um, there are some uh, bits in the science which make it mean, well, <laughs> it's clear that it's not entirely clear in terms of where that sits, <laughs> right? There might be some benefit at different points, maybe not. Yeah, it's clear that it's not entirely clear. <laughs> we have a lot to learn, but the most exciting thing is that there appears to be at least in vitro and as we're learning in vivo potential for synergism with uh, some of our targeted therapies in particular, IL-6 inhibitors and checkpoint inhibition, such that it might even portend a more favorable tumor response. And uh, the issue is, is so important because these patients that develop immune-related adverse events amidst their cancer treatment with immunotherapy, that often interrupts their cancer treatment um, have to stop their immunotherapy, not in addition to being terribly debilitated by the side effects that we then have to treat with a lot of steroids, which 
in addition to the more well-known side effects of, of chronic glucocorticoid use, actually we're learning has negative implications for their tumor outcomes as well. So all the more important for us to have this discussion and learn um, about safety and effectiveness of, of targeted steroid sparing therapy in this, in this setting. I mean, it's great to see um, us be able to have this uh, discussion as a rheumatology community, this idea, of course, that we can do something that will help IREs, but also potentially even um, help, help tumor response is appealing. I mean, even at a more ba basic level, like you say, the idea that we can try and get keep IREs um, under control, even in a tumor neutral kind of way would um, to keep patients on checkpoint inhibitors as long as possible, potentially life-saving checkpoint inhibitors. That's obviously also a very appealing as well. Um, it sounds like, I mean, like you laid out uh, this morning, there's a whole load of studies uh, that are going on in this area um, driven by, um, well, right around the world and driven by various different groups. Um, it sounds like there's some really nice um, uh, work going collaboratively um, in this space in the US and, and, and globally. Very much so, which was exciting to see not just the ongoing trials listed on clinicaltrials.gov, looking at, at this from both a tumor outcome standpoint, as well as IRA e-management, but yes, NOHA presented um, their registered clinical trial for IL-6 inhibition concurrently with ipilimumab and, and nivolumab and their really extensive experience, you know, almost like 80, 90 patients that they've treated with IL-6 inhibition so far, which is really fantastic and amazing. And then uh, Pankti has, has grand plans to, to look at this in a, in a multi-center fashion, which is going to be really, really cool. And I mean, it's, it's clear as well from the uh, poll that I sent out, uh, uh, during that, that we were a little bit split on whether people prefer mm -hmm. a TNF inhibitor for, or an IL-6 inhibitor in this context in their everyday practice. In fact, more than half of people nominated a TNF inhibitor. And, and I suspect, well, based on the, the data that you presented of your own experience and based on my own personal experience, I think people are generally a little bit split in, in general, right? I mean, uh, there's there's all the... All the um, elements of trying to navigate that. So, um, I mean, there, were, there was plenty of other work. Um, why don't you tell me about, a little bit about what else excited you at this meeting about IRAs? Oh, what else? There was so much um, and it was all really wonderful. A couple of things that stood out for me was uh, a, a nice uh, presentation uh, of an abstract from the Brigham that Jeff Sparks um, presented, I forget on which day, looking at predictors of rheumatic IREs, which they had, had published at some point before this meeting, but really great um, data suggesting that patients with specific malignancies like melanoma and GU cancers may portend a higher risk for rheumatic IREs, as well as patients with pre-existing like non-rheumatic autoimmune diseases. And then anyone who had been on steroids or any use of steroids within a year preceding immunotherapy. Those are all predictors of rheumatic IRE. And I think that is an evolving space and really important for us to have an awareness of, of these predictors for a better understanding. Um, the perhaps most interesting abstract, um, in addition to, I thoroughly enjoyed Laura Capelli's session on triple M syndrome where she hosted Ann Bass and Andrew Mammon and uh, Syed Mahmood talking about triple M and just kind of 
reiterating and reinforcing our tremendous knowledge gaps in this area. And that's my side of my carditis and my scenographers for those. Yes. Thank you. Yes. This uh, really kind of heretofore never been seen side effect where patients are afflicted by one or all of myocarditis, uh, what we think is myasthenia gravis and um, myositis and really highlights how much we need to to learn in this space. And with the summary being diagnose early, start high dose steroids early. Um, But to that theme, there was a really cool abstract by um, a group from Paris that described about 20 patients who had immunotherapy related myotoxicity, looking to answer the question of what is actually happening in these patients that we think have myasthenia gravis. You know, they have, may have, may or may not have myositis symptoms, but then they also have this bulbar symptoms and, and behave very much like myasthenia. But this group looked and showed that that might not actually be the case, despite a proportion of them having acetylcholinesterase antibodies they, through EMG and even postmortem studies did not look like those patients had like a neuromuscular junction issue on, on EMG nor on postmortem like histopath. And I thought that was really fascinating. So much to learn in this space. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one other one I just want to um, kind of get your thoughts on, uh, which was the work that was done on, um, on autoantibodies um, out of um, hospital for special surgery and uh, Sloan Kettering, uh, looking really and, and seeing that perhaps um, and, and I know the evidence is a bit, well, the data that's been presented has been a little bit contradictory on this, but generally has favoured away from any um, predictive um, benefit of conventional, of what we, I'd call conventional kind of rheumatic autoantibodies, rheumatoid factor, anti-CCP, um, but looking more at antibody signatures and the potential benefit of that. And that's, I mean, that's a hot thing within checkpoint inhibitor, well, within immunotherapy and cancer. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious as to whether you think that's uh, going to be something that will help us in the future. Yeah, I think that was a a very cool abstract and kind of taking it to the next level as we have, you know, seen many, many, much work on our traditional autoantibodies. And it doesn't seem to be clear that those are very helpful, but this next level autoantibody signature, um, which is being studied in like COVID and and other other hip things right now, I think think that's a really cool prospect and and look forward to, to seeing more on that. Well, um, it's all happening in RAs. I'm sure that next year will bring some uh, even cooler things. Thank you very much for joining me today, Cassie. Thank you for having me, David, as always. Hello, everyone. My name is Shweta, and I'm reporting from ACR 2021 for Room Now. And I would like to talk about a recap of some posters on tumor necrosis factor inhibitors and spondyloarthritis, which was presented at the ACR 2021. Let's dive in to see some of the most recent what some of the most recent studies have to say. So abstract number 0451 was from a German cohort, and that has shown that TNFI use in early axial spondyloarthritis, which means if the non-radiographic axpa with a symptom duration of less than or equal to five years and a radiographic axpa with a symptom duration of less than or equal to 10 years has shown a decrease in radiographic sacroiliitis progression when you use it over a period of two years. This is great news, and now clinicians usually start to taper patients off the TNFI based on clinical and radiographic improvement. 
Abstract number 0364 sought to identify the characteristics of AXPA patients when they were tapered off of the TNFI when they did show clinical and radiographic improvement. This study showed that a half of the patients on the study were able to be tapered off and the highest predictor of success was low physician global score in simple terms, which means when the physician assesses you and says that it's okay to go down on the dose. And interestingly, another abstract, which is 0929, addresses the opposite question. They sought to identify if there were any baseline or clinical or imaging predictors of flare when you're tapering the TNFI when a patient is in remission from AXPA. And they found that the only independent predictor of flare was a higher baseline physician global score. So the key pearl from all of these studies basically means that the rheumatologist, rheumatologist actually knows when to taper off your TNFI. Is your TNFI not is your TNFI not working? So abstract number 0936 evaluated the development of some anti-drug antibodies against TNFI longitudinally during two-year period in which the AXPA patients and factors associated with it were assessed. About 180 AXPA patients were on a new TNFI and they were followed over a two-year period and they measured their serum drug levels and anti-drug antibodies at different intervals. And the development of the anti-drug antibodies against the TNFI was associated with a high disease activity development of any adverse events, and treatment discontinuation in patients with AXPA. Lastly, which TNFI should you be using? Abstract number 0938 aimed to evaluate the effectiveness and treatment survival of different TNF blocking agents within a cohort of patients with axial spondyloarthritis from 2003 to 2019. There were no significant differences in the effectiveness or treatment survival among different TNFI. The effectiveness and drug survival was also not different between non-radiographic AXPA and ankylosing spondyloarthritis either. If there's a failure to your first TNFI, it did not diminish the effectiveness or drug survival of subsequent TNFI treatments. The main reason for treatment discontinuation was secondary failure. Thank you, and I hope this was useful.